Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens and sitting across the desk from me as usual is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening those who listen to the program. A little bit under the weather in terms of the flu, but um, I think we'll get through this evening. We are glad that you have taken time out of your Tuesday evening to join us. And yes, I did use the word join. And I don't just mean that in the sense that you are listening. We want you to ask your questions and interact with us. Pastor is here on Tuesday evenings for 90 minutes live to be able to answer your questions. No matter how you're joining us, no matter what uh, means of communication you are interacting with us, thank you for taking time out of your Tuesday evening, and we are going to jump right into the material for tonight. Pastor Murphy, if you remember, right at the end of last week's episode, you were asked a question about whether the Bible endorses social drinking in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And in response to your uh, answer, a listener sent in a question. But real quick, before we get to his question... Does the Bible, in a short answer, does the Bible endorse social drinking? I think I pointed out last time, and I I firmly uh, hold to this position, you cannot use the Bible to support social drinking among Christians. As a matter of fact, I was kind of shocked that any Christian would um, give the semblance of support for social drinking in the context of the sottish age in which we live. Uh, That kind of shocked me. I think that I mentioned alcohol is the major drug that is used in modern times. It causes more problems and more death, and it's more expensive in terms of treating than any other drug that's being used um, by young people. It's it's more serious than uh, than crack, cocaine, marijuana, heroin. Uh, It is just the worst drug that is being used. And I, I, I find it difficult why Christians should even uh, consider or ponder uh, the social use of alcohol in view of these facts. What do you tell the young people? How do you uh, refute the use and abuse of other illegal forms of drugs? I don't know how you can do it. So people lose their clout, they lose their testimony, lose their witness, and people are not prepared to listen to people like this who um, would endorse uh, the social drinking. Um, But the guy asked a question, if I may do it. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. The question that came in is, Pastor, where does the Bible say that wine was one-third percent wine and two-thirds 
water. Yeah. Well, there's nothing in the Bible that says that. A lot of what we come to positions is to discover what was the custom and the tradition and the practices in the uh, in the um, in ancient times. That's what you do. You do research. You do archaeology. You read documents, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and you try to discover because that's what that's what archaeology is there for. That's what researchers are there for. We don't know. We can't. Um, we were not there. Nobody was there to report it. But in the documentation and the practice in the in the, uh, in, the uh, in the ancient world, that's where you discover what was the practice. And I'm heavily dependent on three sources for this. The first one is uh, Geisler, Dr. Geisler, Norman Geisler, uh, from his book When Critics Ask on page 500. Uh, let me just say a few words about Dr. Geisler to let you know what his, his qualifications are. For those people who are impressed by scholarship and credentials, uh, this is a man who was a systematic theologian, a philosopher, an apologist, an international speaker, a professor, an author. Uh, he's a graduate of Wheaton, Wheaton College. He did his uh, master's as well as Wheaton Theological Seminary, as well as William Tyndale College, and he got his PhD from Loyola, uh, Loyola, Loyola uh, University. Uh, he taught theology, philosophy, and classical Christian apologetics, apologetics. Uh, on the undergraduate and graduate level for over 50 years. Uh, he was in the faculty of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Dallas Theological Seminary, and Liberty University. Uh, he founded two seminaries, Southern Evangelical Seminary and Veritas Evangelical Seminary. He also founded the Evangelical Philosophical Society and the International Society of Christian Apolog- uh, Apologetics. So if you're talking about a man who is supremely qualified, who has done all the research, and out of that research he's written this book, and he has disclosed uh, his discoveries. That's where he got this thing from. The other thing has to do with uh, Baker's Illustrated Bible Dictionary on page 722, uh, when it explains the idea of mixing wine with water uh, to use it as a beverage, uh, etc. And then, of course, the other one is Management Customs of Bible uh, Times by Ralph Gower, published by Moody Institute. Uh, Moody Press. So uh, it's not something that you find in the Bible. There are lots of things you don't find in the Bible, but what you do, you uh, that's why you have Bible dictionaries and Bible encyclopedias where people have done tremendous research and invested time and energy and resources to discover what were the customs of the time, what were the practice of the time. It's out of this kind of uh, scholastic inve- investigation that you make these kind of discoveries so that people can understand what was being practiced and we must not use our cultural norm as a means for doing what we want to do. Uh, there's only one interpretation that's correct for each verse of the Bible, and that's what the author meant in the context of the times in which he lived. We can't read into Scripture what we want to read. That's called eisegesis. We practice exegesis, which is trying to extract from the Scriptures precisely what the writer or the author meant. So I hope that kind of clears it up. If you look in the Bible to see uh, one, one, one verses three thirds, you're not going to find it there. It comes out of the investigation that's done to find out what were the customs and the manners and the, and the practices in those uh, that period of time. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question. If you have a question, you can WhatsApp or text it to one two six eight seven eight two. One four five four. Nathan, there's something else I, I would like to just make a comment on. You know, when you go to the Bible and to see uh, what was forbidden and by whom it was forbidden, I think this in itself sends an indicator of God's mind concerning this whole matter. For example, the Nazarite was forbidden for drinking strong drink. 
okay? I remember Nazarite was a person who had dedicated his life to the Lord. The uh, John the Baptist, who was said to be no person ever born was greater than John the Baptist. That's what he, Jesus said. He, right? Yeah, he was forbidden not to partake of uh, strong drink and wine. And then in the book of Leviticus 10, verse 5 to 9, the priests were forbidden to partake of wine and strong drink. I, if this is an indication uh, of what God's mind is in respect to those people who hold spiritual authority, I think this is a uh, a, a principle that clearly would relate to believers because what are we? We are dedicated and we are priests unto the Lord. So how can the Old Testament standard be any higher than it would be in the New Testament context? And then you go to the New Testament, and it's warning the way, again, about wine and the use of wine, especially as we relate to pastors, etc., etc. So I think that um, we have a strong uh, indirect argument from the application of Scripture and the understanding of the custom that this would not be something that Christians should engage in on a social level, especially in light, as I said, of the sottish age in which we live, where alcohol is so destructive to the family and destructive to society. Uh, we should not uh, encourage it, tolerate it, uh, or endorse it in any way. Another question that has come in, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2 it's in reference to that. Let me read it. It says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. First Peter chapter 1-2 tells us that we are sanctified by the Spirit, yet Jesus asserts that believers are sanctified by the Word of God in John seventeen seventeen, which is correct. Well, both are correct. Uh, the simple answer to that question is to understand what is being taught. We are sanctified by the Spirit through the instrumentality of the Word. In other words, the Spirit of God is the efficient agent uh, that is used, uh, and He works through the Word, which we might call the instrumental cause of sanctification. So the Holy Spirit uh, sanctifies, and he does that through the process of the Word. So there's no contradiction here. We are both sanctified by the Spirit and by the Word. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's why in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, the Scriptures is called the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's the instrument he uses. So it's a process where the, the agent, the effect, efficient agent is the Spirit, and the instrumental agent is the Holy Spirit. So there's no contradiction there whatsoever. He uses the word to sanctify. And the word sanctify, by the way, means to separate the believer and to make the believer more holy. That's what it means um, when it comes to the word of sanctification. If you have a question, you can call and ask it live on the air. The phone line is open and awaiting your call. And the number to call is one 462 7420 I'm going to give that to you again now that you get your phone unlocked or you grab the paper and a pencil to be put live on the air by calling and asking your question. You can call 1-268-462-7420. Revelation chapter 1 verse 4 says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. 
Pastor, what are the seven spirits mentioned in Revelation 1? <coughs> well, I think one of the things that is helpful, or one of two things. Number one, it notice that this greeting is sent from three sources. There is he who, which was, uh, uh, which is, and which is to come. And then there's the seven spirits before the, the throne. And then there's the, the one that was dead and the prince of the king of the earth, which is the son. So if you look at it, quite frankly, uh, uh, you've got the father, you've got the son. You almost can interpret uh, without even understanding that really the seven spirits represent the spirit. So that you have the Trinity as um, greeting the seven churches. Uh, the second thing that we need to remember that would help us in because you, you, you can't associate two persons and then a thing. You get what I'm saying? It's just like you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit. But that is clearly an indirect reference to the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The other thing that we need to remember that the book of Revelation is a book full of symbolism. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 1, you'll see that it says that it was sent to signify, you notice the word there, Revelation 1 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto the servant. John. So notice that you should to, to show, not to tell, to show. In other words, this is a pictorial representation of what God wanted to convey, and the idea there is to signify, uh, to show by, by symbolism. Uh, these things which uh, he wants to get across. So you find throughout the book of Revelation, a lot of symbols are used. We don't have to look at all of these, Nathan, but in, in chapter 12, verse 3, Satan is called the great dragon with seven heads and ten horns. Now, clearly, he doesn't look like that. But again, he signified, he's symbolically showing the picture. In Revelation 13, 1, the beast out of the sea, which is the end-time empire, uh, is a beast that has seven heads and ten horns. Again, that is a monstrosity in terms of a visible presentation or a symbol of what that empire would look like. But notice that he has seven horns and ten, seven heads and uh, seven heads and ten horns, showing his association with Satan. The symbolism there, and then in Revelations one verse uh, twelve and sixteen, the seven golden uh, uh, candlesticks and the seven stars. We're told that the candlesticks represent the seven churches, and the stars represent the ministers of the churches. So throughout. Uh, we have this kind of symbolism. Uh, the third thing is that throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit is represented by different symbols. For example, in John 3, he's represented like the wind. He says, you must be born of the Spirit. What do you mean? He said, well, the wind blows where he lists of. So the wind is used as a symbol of the Spirit where it shows his invisible, mysterious, sovereign power, how it works. That's how the Spirit works. In Mark 10, Mark 1, the Spirit comes as a dove, on Christ when he's baptized. In John chapter 4, verse 14, he's water. I'll give you water that if you drink, you'll never thirst again. And he explained what that water was. He speak concerning the Spirit. And then in Acts 2, uh, the Spirit comes as tongues of fire, giving this global witness to speaking in tongues. And then, of course, in Ephesians 1, 13, the Spirit is called a seal, uh, which talks about ownership and security. So the question is, uh, why, why then would John use these seven spirits, is there anything in the Bible that helps us to grasp what he might be referring to? And I think so. If you look at Isaiah chapter uh, 11, verse 2. Isaiah eleven two says, 
And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Now notice that when it speaks of the Father, it says, from him which is, which was, and which is to come. That's his characteristic. When it speaks of the Son, it speaks of one, Jesus Christ, who the faithful witness, the first begotten from the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth. That's his character. So what's the characteristic then of the Spirit? Uh, he has seven features. What are the seven features? Well, go back to Isaiah. Notice, the Spirit of the Lord. The spirit of wisdom, two. The spirit of understanding, three. The spirit of counsel, four. The spirit of might, five. The spirit of knowledge, six. And the spirit of the fear of the Lord. In other words, the seven characteristics of the spirit. And that's, most Bible scholars will tell you that that's a representation of the spirit. And since the other two personalities, what characterizes them and mention, it is very logical that these, these seven spirits represent the seven characteristics that are mentioned in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. So um, that's what we would say, uh, that the seven spirits are a representation of the Holy Spirit, and that goes along with the Bible teaching of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and uh, and then you find in the baptismal formula, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit again, you're baptizing, etc. And many of Paul's uh, greetings, uh, if you look at the epistle very carefully, you'll find that his introduction is a reference to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. A very common procedure. So that's the answer. The, the, the seven spirits are representative or symbolic of the sevenfold characteristic of the Holy Spirit you find in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Question that has come in from a listener in Antigua. Pastor, why did Peter say, Drink not only water, but a little wine for thy stomach's sake? But Peter didn't say that. It's Paul that told him that they said that. But again, it is a very simple matter. It's a medical condition that uh, Timothy had. Um, you know, we got clean water today, don't we? And we put fluorine in it, we put chloride in it, and the other things that might put in, in etc. But remember back in those days, it was all, all about catchment of water, either wells or whatever, but we, we didn't have a, they didn't have a flowing system that we have, they didn't have anything to put in the water. And there was a lot of, of course, people's body were much more resistant because they had a lot more uh, disease, etc. But clearly, Timothy had a problem that and we're not too sure the nature of the problem, but whatever it was, uh, the water uh, commonly drank uh, was helping to ex- uh, exacerbate the problem, create a more severe problem. So Paul is saying, add uh, the wine. And, and by the way, if you read the book I mentioned, the customs and manner of um, New Testament times or Old Testament times by Gower, you discover that wine was used for medicinal purposes as well. There's a lot of a whole chapter on the whole matter. And also if you read uh, Baker's Dictionary of, of the Bible, you'll also find reference to the fact that the wine was used for this purpose. So it had a medicinal purpose. And today, by the way, it does have a medicinal purpose. You cannot drink, I, I, I can't think of any kind of liquid medication today that it doesn't have some, like a 10% or 5% content of alcohol because it does have medicinal use. But you must not take what is for medicinal use and use it to socialize, especially in the light of the fact that it's an addictive drug. All drunkenness, all inebriation starts with social drinking. Nobody ever becomes a drunkard who did not start social drinking. So why in the world would we want to encourage it by our own practice? Uh, We should want to tell people, stay away from it. It is very, very dangerous. And as I keep pointing out, 
um, I understand the hypocrisy that the young people feel towards the government who wants to restrict like marijuana use and so on because uh, um, nicotine, cigarettes is a drug. Alcohol is a drug. We allow those, and government has endorsed them, uh, and as a result, there's so much death and destruction caused by those two drugs. But again, that's why young people find it difficult to say, "Well, why you why you ban cigarettes, and why you want to, and why you uh, why you allow cigarettes, but you don't know you want to ban marijuana, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. We must set examples as believers, and sobriety is the example that Christians should be setting, and abstinence as well. It's just like the same problem with sex. You know, well, if we don't practice absent from sex and we say, well, you know, it's not too bad, you know, you can do it once in a while. What does that say to the young people? What kind of argument is that if we maintain abstinence, but we don't uh, t- suggest moderation? Uh, so the, the best approach to this whole matter is not moderation. It is abstinence uh, for very, very good reasons. And uh, let, let's not buy into this. I know there's some churches, uh, I know one church here in Antigua, I understand, that encourages it and actually practice it, uh, from what I understand, even in, after the service. It's like a social time together. I suspect the person who's bringing this up is probably part of that group, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But, you know, I'm not influenced by culture. I'm not influenced by what other churches are practicing. What I'm concerned about is what is God's Word teaches, what were the customs, what would you practice, and how can we best manifest to the world a Christian standing, a Christian understanding, and especially how do we tone down this addictive problem that we have uh, on, on a global scale and within the Caribbean. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth. It's a live call-in program, an interactive program. You don't have to call and ask your question live on the air. You can WhatsApp or text your question to one 268 7821454 or you can call and ask your question live on the air by dialing 1-268-462-7420. You can also join us on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and in the comments section you can comment your concern or your question. Thank you to each individual who has sent in a question thus far tonight. A WhatsApp question. Yeah, I would like to add one, one um, caveat here, uh, Nathan. Is that I'm not against the use of non-alcoholic wine. Okay, let's be very, very clear about that. There are you can go into the store here in Antigua and you can buy non. I'm not against that. That is something that is should not be against. I'm against the idea of using alcoholic wine on a social basis because one thing leads to the other, and uh, I would rather be on the side of preventing something than then to try to fix it after it's happened. A WhatsApp question that has come in. Good night, brethren. I was in a discussion today that left me puzzled and left me puzzled for my fellow brother. If someone does not repent, do I have to forgive him? And the scripture that was used was Luke 17, 3 and 4. It says, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Pastor, do I have to forgive him? Well, I would say this. Um, that's a question that came up more than once in the program. Um, clearly, there is a 
condition laid down there by our Lord, not myself, not Paul, not teachers, that uh, if the brother has committed offense and he uh, he repents and he asks forgiveness, we forgive. No question about that. All I would add to this matter is that I think we should always maintain a, a forgiving attitude, which is something completely different. You don't help people who are constantly hurting you and doing something wrong and uh, you completely ignoring what is happening again and again. There's no basis for that person to want to change. And that's where the element of, of repentance is, is vital. Uh, if we're going to have any kind of change, there should be this element of, of, uh, of uh, repentance. But um, we should always have a disposition of willing to forgive that is what I would say as far as that is concerned. And there's nothing wrong in telling somebody who's done you wrong, listen, um, uh, what you did is wrong. I think you know it's wrong. And uh, the scriptural principle is that um, forgiveness is contingent on my repentance, on your repentance. I want you to know that I, I, I hold nothing ill will against you. Uh, I'm always willing to forgive and pardon, but we cannot uh, sustain a relationship or maintain or restore relationship until this thing is done biblically and correct. Uh, it doesn't mean that I am hateful of you, I, I, I am dislikeful of you, etc. But our relationship will be strained until we go through the biblical process. I think if we would keep doing those kind of things and insisting, we would get real change. But the idea of just nonchalantly uh, bypassing this and, and treating it as though it's nothing, I, it doesn't help. It will happen again and happen again. So I do feel the element of repentance is vital. But the key thing here is maintaining a forgiving attitude as a believer and not holding resentment and ill will towards the person. Hey, WhatsApp, thank you for the, your question. Another question has come in. Saul, before he became Paul, on his way to Damascus, I believe, encountered God. God, God called on him, Saul, Saul. Why dost thou persecute me? And his reply, Who are you, Lord? Now, if he already knew it was the Lord, why ask, Who are you? I don't get it. Well, I, the, 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 it's very clear that Paul did not know who the Lord was. That was the point. Paul was going against the church. He thought Christ was an imposter. Christ was a deceiver. Uh, he did not believe that Christ was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. It's very, very clear this was Paul's position. He was a Pharisee, just like the Pharisees in the New Testament were the chief antagonists against Christ. Uh, the same thing happened with the Apostle Paul. You read his life and you read the account that's given in the book of Acts, you find that everywhere he went, went to the synagogue, he's always confronted by these religious Jews, these Pharisaical sector within the the, the, the Jewish church that always opposed Paul's message. So when Paul was on the road to Damascus, um, he was on a track to go to from Jerusalem to Damascus to find any Christians who were of the way, in other words, people who were professing to be believers in Christ, and Paul was going to stamp this religion out. Uh, Paul was like a, um, uh, um, an Al-Qaeda kind of a, uh, personality that uh, was going to be very, very violent and uh, it's almost like a holy war of Judaism against Christianity. And his wife is on this journey to destroy the church, destroy early Christians, to incarcerate believers, bring them down to Jerusalem, perhaps get them even prosecuted or executed. Remember he was there when Stephen was stoned. 
That's what Paul wanted to do, get rid of these Christians, kill these Christians. But while he's there, God miraculously intervened with Paul, uh, sent a blinding light that, um, in my judgment, he never fully recovered because in the book of Galatians, he complains and he says, look what large letters have written with you. And it's always believed that the thorn in the flesh that Paul had uh, related to the fact that he had some kind of a problem with with his eyes. Pastor, we have a call. Codrington, thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Okay. Um, good night to the panel, and good night to the listeners. Okay. I just want to ask this question. Why did God don't want nobody to know what kind of racist he be? I think what kind that, of what? Uh, you're hearing me? Yes, go ahead. Yeah, why did God don't want the world to know who he represented because you know they have black people in the world they have white people they have yellow people they have all kind of different color people yeah. inside the world right uh-huh. so i want to know why did david say he, he um he's come from the seed of solomon solomon was a black man david was a black man and job or to say his skin is getting black on him and all those people are supposed to be Jewish. Mm-hmm. So I just want to know why did God don't come right out and tell people what color he is? Well, okay. Well, first of all, you're wrong on several points, but let me correct you in first of all. Number one, God doesn't have a color. Okay? God is a spirit. So that's the first thing we got to understand. However, in order to redeem man who was a human being, Man had brought sin into the world. God sent his son as a man to take man's sin and so that man could be forgiven. So God, in his sovereignty, sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to assume a human form. He became a human form through the Jewish nation. He saw Abraham, and he came to Isaac and Jacob, and through Judah and through David, right down until you come to Joseph and you come to Mary. Number two. The Jews are not black people, okay? The Jews are Semitic people. Black people are Hamitic people. So that needs to be very, very, very clear. The words that are used in the Bible about uh, somebody being black, it means completely like, it's like when you burn with the sun. That's what it really means. It means dark, etc., etc. It doesn't mean that, uh, for example, uh, to use an example, the lady in the book Song of Solomon, uh, who is courting Solomon's God, uh, says that he is ivory. So what does that mean? Right? Uh, my beloved is, I, is, is ivory. What does that mean? Okay. I'm not, I'm, all I'm saying to you is that the Jewish people are not black people. The black people are not Jewish people. people black people are black people. The Jewish people are Jewish people. You can do a, 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 a DNA and know that black people are not Jewish people. So I'm not too sure where all this nonsense came from. I suspect that this came from the Black Nationalist Movement that started the Rastafarian Movement, and it has gone on and gone on and gone on. And the problem with um, the black people in the Caribbean and America is that they're being misled down a track because it caters to their to their um, identity. But they should be proud of the fact that there are black people. They should not be concerned about wanting to be Jewish people. I can't figure out why they would want to steal somebody's identity. They're talking about identity theft. This is clear identity theft. So I don't know. So you're completely wrong on that one. And uh, there has never been any discovery uh, in the ancient either whether documents or pictorial diagrams that the Jews were ever black people. So I don't know where it comes from. I just think it's something concocted. 
And uh, even the, the Africans are upset with the black Americans about trying to make black people Jews. They're terribly upset about that because it, it means now that blacks develop a dislike for the Jews as though the Jews stole their identity, when it's the complete reverse. So I think that, that you need to get some clarity on this matter and understand that you're being misled on this subject. But because God sent his son as a Jew, okay? Now, a Jew is not a white person either. A Jew is a Semitic person. A white person is Japhetic. So a Jew is not a, a, a white person either. What has happened, because when you look at the Jewish people today in America, and, and like, by the way, look at some of the, the uh, supposed black people in America who are on television. You cannot hardly distinguish whether they're white or whether they're black. Because when you're in an environment where the, you've got coldness and so on and so forth, if a black person goes from here and live in Canada or live in, in Alaska, you'll find that his pigmentation changes. He becomes much lighter and much lighter. And that's what's happened with the Jewish people, etc., etc., where they've been forced to live, etc., etc. But uh, so don't be misled by people who are leading down this rabbit trail. It's a false trail. And I'm appalled that no black person has really gotten up and really spoken against it and, and uh, said, this is nonsense. It needs to be cleared up because that's exactly what it is. Foolishness and nonsense. And I, I can't imagine people who are informed could tolerate this kind of thing uh, to mislead people. Do you think it's distracting from the gospel? Of course it's distracting from the gospel. It's like I mentioned, people who are, Paul said, all I want to know among you is Christ and Christ crucified. They're people who make the name, uh, uh, some special name like Yahweh. You've got to call God Yahweh. You've got to call Jesus Jesus. All the fight is about this nonsense. And then the other thing, of course, is those who make a special day. Everything is about this special day. As long as you keep this special day, you're okay. And I'm saying to myself, it's a total distraction from the gospel. Let's talk about Christ and being Christ-like. Let this be the focus and not get distracted by these things. And now the matter of race and blackness and whiteness and greenness and pinkness and so on and so forth, it's pure nonsense. There is no, look, we're all, there's only one race. It's called the human race. And within that race, you've got three clear, distinct uh, ethnic groups, basically. But it's all one race, and they had all one father. It's just that the pigmentation is different. So why, why make this a big issue? Uh, once we're created by God, we came from uh, male and female, we came from Adam and Eve, that means we're all family. This thing uh, that is being pushed, it, 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 I see no advantage to it. I think it created more disunity and more division. It will never lead to healing for sure. And uh, I think we need to understand that we must find our identity in Christ. Whether you be a black person, a pink person, a green person, a white person, a brown person, a whatever, you should find your identity in Christ. That should be what is the important thing, that you belong to him, that you're in his family. Not because I'm black or I'm white or green. Or, all of this should have been stopped a long time ago. But it is uh, people who have an agenda. Uh, not a biblical agenda either, sometimes a political agenda, sometimes a racial agenda, sometimes a national agenda, who push this thing because it's to their advantage to keep people divided. Christ was sent to heal and bring races and people together, centered around God's word and this great salvation that we have. Let's make that our focus and let's make that our center and not be distracted by these things as believers. Codrington, thank you for your call and for your question we have a lot of questions that are coming in. If you haven't heard your question yet, we will get to it. Uh, a question that has come from Facebook. Pastor, wait, wait a minute. Yeah. There was a question we were dealing with at, uh, before and before. I want to finish it up quickly. Uh, about Saul and Damascus Road? Oh, yes, yes. 
so what happened with, with Saul is that he's on his way to destroy the church, destroy, um, bring incarcerate believers, etc., persecute them, even martyr them if need be. And it's while he's on that trip that God intervenes in Paul's life, and, and with a blinding light, he's, he falls to the ground. And, and, and Paul asked the question that you and I would ask, Who art thou, Lord? And, and, and he was expecting perhaps to say, the word maybe Elohim or Jehovah or El Shaddai or or um, Jehovah Jireh or, or Yahweh, but the answer he got was, "I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest." For the first time, Paul now realizes that Jesus Christ is God the Son. And by the way, you'll discover that after his blindness is restored, and the disciples are suspicious of him, etc., we find that Barnabas brings Paul to the group. And the Bible says, from that time onward, he began to preach that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's when he realized who Jesus Christ was. Before, he never understood it. He thought Christ was a fake and an imposter. But that was the moment of transformation and discovery of who the identity of Christ was. And then you go to Paul's epistles, and you find out that he makes it very clear in his epistles that this one was equal with God and did not consider equality with God something to be held on to but made himself of no reputation was made in the form of a man became a servant and was obedient unto death this is the God man that Paul never understood until he was redeemed and saved and I'll tell you this (coughs) there's many a man that will never understand fully who Christ is until he's redeemed and he comes to understand who this one is Jesus Christ he's not a man he's man and God at the same time he's the God man he's the son of God A question has come in from Facebook. What is meant by the soul is the seat of the emotions, and what is the difference between the soul and the spirit? Well, generally speaking, people are either dichotomous or trichotomous. By that I mean you either believe that man has a material part and a spiritual part. Some people break down this spiritual part into two parts, the soul and the spirit. We all know what the body is. The body is that part, the physical part of man, that uh, through which we receive sensations, okay? Uh, the soul is, is normally made of the intellect, the emotions, and um, uh, intellect, emotions, will, and will, uh, the volition, uh, three parts that the, the soul is made up of. So the body is the means to which the, the, the soul interacts with the whether it has to do with making the choices, decisions, whether it has to do with emotions or feelings, uh, or whether it has to do with, with, with uh, knowledge, etc. The spirit is that part of man that relates to God. And that's the part that the Bible said is dead. In the book of Ephesians, what happened when Adam sinned, God said he would die. He, Adam would die physically. But that day, Adam died spiritually. In the sense, remember what death is? Death is a separation that's what death is. Physical death is separation of the body from the soul. Um, spiritual death is separation of the uh, soul from the from from God. And eternal death is eternal separation of the body and soul from God forever. It's all separation. But what happened when man sinned is that there became now a separation where man became alienated from God. That's what the Bible teaches. Okay, that's why Ephesians said that we were dead in trespasses and sins. And we, you'll find repeatedly in Scripture the reference to the fact that man is dead. What does that mean? Well, he's walking. 
He's physically walking, but he's dead spiritually. That means he has no connection with God. That's why he's a God-hater. That's why he's idolatrous. That is why he wants autonomy and self-independence. Uh, that, that's because he, his relationship with God was severed. You find that in Genesis, when God would come down and talk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, walk with them. But when sin happened, what does Adam do? He's hiding. He's covering up. And that's what man has been doing ever since. He's no longer drawn towards God as Adam was. Sin has separated between God and man. And that's what spiritual death is all about. So the soul is that part which deals with the, the emotions, it deals uh, with the intellect, and it has to do with the will. The spirit is that part that we connect with God at conversion. And ye have he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespass and sins. The spirit within the person comes alive again. That's why uh, believers are so different than the unsafe person. We can now relate to God. Our thoughts are now directed towards God. Our desires are now directed towards God. The same God that we couldn't stand is the same God that we, we serve. As a matter of fact, now we're saved. We wish we didn't have to sin. We, we, we want so much holiness and we want such perfection with Him that we, we, we dread the idea that we know we sin, we know we do wrong, but it doesn't bring us pleasure. It brings us disappointment and guilt and grief. That's the new man within us because the Spirit has now been made alive and that connection with God is now very much alive. We've been quickened and made alive through uh, the Spirit of God. Question that has come in, Pastor Murphy, which race went through slavery the most and was spread all over the world? Well, I would say the Jewish nation. There's no question about that. Uh, You read uh, 430 years of slavery in Egypt. Uh, Israel in 722 carried into uh, Assyria. And then in 586, carried into Babylon and scattered. Then in 70, 80, again, the Romans scattered them again. There's no people have suffered more than the Jewish people. There's no question about that. Uh, the African slave trade shrinks in comparison to what the Jews have suffered over the years. Even in modern times, no, no nation, no group of people suffered more on the tyranny than the Jewish people. Hitler killed six million of them. Uh, uh, and, and I think the atrocities are, are there. You ever see some of the pictures of the starvation, the skin and bone, and how we would dump them? In, in, I mean, they've been through far more than any other nation on the heaven, but all nations, all races have gone through slavery. Um, the Europeans been through slavery as well. Black people have been through slavery. Indians been through slavery. The Chinese been through slavery. As a matter of fact, China now has over 2 million uh, people in slavery. They call the Uyghurs, and they're harvesting their hearts and harvesting their kidneys and harvesting the different body parts of themselves, and they got them in what's called an adoptional uh, educational camp. And the world is silent about this, and I can't figure out how the world can be silent about what is going on against these uh, Muslim people in that part of the world. So slavery hasn't changed. And by the way, there are African nations who have currently people enslaved in Africa as well, especially with the civil wars and what they do, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I would say uh, with, without question, without even debate, uh, the Jewish people have suffered more in slavery than any other group on the planet Earth, whether pink, blue, black, or green. They have suffered the most. Thank you for your questions. A WhatsApp question from a listener in Antigua. Pastor, what kind of wine Jesus made at the wedding when men did already drunk? 
Well, they were drunk there, but they know me that they were drunk and drunken. They were me to drink. They had red drank all the wine that was there. So maybe you're looking at the word drunk and figure that the people were drunk drinking wine. That's the use of going to Bible dictionary and having a concordance and using the concordance to do that. They suggested that they were drunk and uh, inebriated. It's, 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 I would say to you, it's a slap uh, uh, in the face of Christ. And really, it's a complete disrespect of his character. And it's, you're impugning his judgment and his character when you suggest that he would make wine that would make people drunk. Uh, that's not the Christ of the Bible. Uh, he would never do that. Uh, it's wine that, as I pointed out to you, that you would have in the New Testament times. One part water, three parts, uh, three parts uh, wine, basically. What was the customary thing that was there? Uh, that's what was there. Um, so I have no problem um, with... Um, my interpretation of that. Like I mentioned before, I have no problem with non-alcoholic wine. Uh, I am concerned about the alcoholic use of, of, of wine uh, as, a, as a social setting. That's what I'm concerned about. So there's no, there's no need to debate or argue uh, on this matter. And don't let the word drunk uh, in any way uh, color your interpretation. Go into your dictionary and, and, uh, Bible dictionary and see what it means there. You see clearly your concordance. Let's not be referring to, to drunkenness. Another question that has come in. Pastor, why would a married couple discuss other things instead of the issues they are facing in their marriage? Well, normally with men, uh, the problem is it's an ego problem with men. Women are always willing to talk about almost anything. Uh, the problems, uh, issues. Men somehow uh, hide behind their pride and their ego. So they're not normally disposed because they think that when a woman brings up something that she's questioning his leadership, she's questioning his his um, his integrity, his uh, spirituality, and uh, it makes them feel very uncomfortable to deal with very intimate and very private matters. Uh, and they always see that they, they feel as though they're threatened. Uh, and I think that is part of the reason. Um, very few, very few men are good talkers. Very, very few men are good talkers. Very few men are good communicators uh, uh, in marriages. If a woman finds a husband that she has one that she really sit down and talk on a regular basis, I wouldn't say she found a peach. That's not a good term, but she's found a good person. And that seldom happened. And it's a great failure on the part of men. It's not that we don't know. Uh, the Bible said, dwell with them according to understanding. And we understand that's the way they're made. As I said many times on this program, if you ask a man what to him is love, very simple, sex. Sex, that's love. You ask a woman what is love, she'll tell you communication, talking, being able to sit down. Two different things altogether. And uh, men need to understand this. And I, I, know I have a problem with it myself, to be very honest with you and being very plain with you. Uh, but the, the, the fact is that uh, that's the reason. Uh, we feel threatened and we are not wired that way. Pastor, we have a call from Bendles Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening. Hey, good evening, Mr. Williams. Good hearing you again, man. How are you? Fine, thank you. Fine, very fine. Under the weather, a little yes. bit with the cold, though. Yes, I would like to ask you a question about John chapter 1, verse 21. Okay, John one let Let's see what that says. John one twenty one says, And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, Pastor, John, John was not a prophet. 
Yeah, John John was a uh, a prophet. Yeah. No, but if, I think if you read the passage, it's asking who did Jesus is. Read it again. Read the passage before. Okay. Yes, I understand that one. Okay, so... No, I understand you know, why you say, but I just wanted to know if he was not a prophet. Oh, yeah, John, John, John was a prophet, but here was what... Um, um, they're asking John... Read the text. I, I just... I'll, yeah. I'll, just uh, I'll go up two verses. John one nineteen says... And this is the record of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to answer him, Who art thou? And he confessed, and denied not, but confessed, I am the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Art thou not that prophet? And he answered, Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then he said unto them, Who art thou? that we may give an answer to them that have sent us, who sayest thou of thyself? And he said, I am the voice, the one, and he said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Now, again, remember uh, Elias, um, the, the Jews are asking, are you Elijah? Now, remember in the book of Malachi, Elijah is to come, okay? But there, and then the other one is that they're asking, is that prophet? What prophet is that? Remember uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses had promised the people that the Lord would raise the prophet like unto himself, and unto him should the people hear. So the prophet that was to come is the Messiah. And uh, it's very, very clear, and I, I can't give you the reference right now, that this very passage where Moses talks about the prophet to come is mentioned that uh, Christ is that prophet. John is disclaiming that he is the prophet because the people are thinking that, Christ, that John is the Messiah. That's what they're trying to think, that he's the, the prophet to come uh, that the Bible has talked about. John will point from himself to Jesus, and he will say that, you know, he must increase and I must decrease. But it's not that John wasn't a prophet, but they ask him, are thou that prophet? What prophet? The prophet that Moses promised to come, who was the Messiah. And John is disclaiming that he is the prophet uh, that was to come, who is the, uh, the, the one that Moses talked about, who was the Christ to come. You follow that? I understand it like that too because when you ask him as all that prophet I realize you're talking about Jesus right right and, I remember, and, and, the, and the point I'm making Mr. Williams is that if you check Deuteronomy you can't give the reference offhand you'll find that Moses mentioned that one day God would send a prophet like unto himself that the people should obey and you'll find in the scriptures uh, in the gospels that that same passage is quoted referring to Christ so John is denying that he is the Christ he's moving people's attention away from himself and pointing the, the people's attention to, to Christ. Remember what he says? Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. He will point yeah. to the disciples to the Christ. That's what he's doing there. He's, he's, he doesn't want the glory of people think that he's the Messiah. He wants that glory to go to, to Christ, which is his proper ministry, because he was the forerunner of Christ to lay the foundation for Christ to come. Um, um, Pastor, um, yes. That, when, 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 when God is doing... Jesus are doing the miracles and and Herod sees there's the prophet John that raised from the dead. Uh-huh. Uh what what they had it's so powerful John John was that like he creates miracles like Christ that they would have taken him Christ for him uh-huh. for John. Well again, remember that Herod has chopped off John's head and said I silenced John. What was John's message? Repent, the kingdom is at hand. Remember that's the message? Yeah, he, yeah. You just killed John. And you thought, well, man alive had gotten rid of the man's message. And then 
as soon as John is dead and Christ learned that John is dead, he comes on the scene. What's he preaching? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. The man is so terrified. He's wondering, wait a minute. I just thought I killed this man. Is he the one? Is he raised from the dead? Uh, but that gives you the idea of the terror. Because remember that Herod knew that the people loved John and they followed John. And had it not been for Herodias dancing before Herod and he making that stupid pledge and vow that he would give unto the half of the kingdom. And then, of course, Herodias' mother um, um, insisted that um, the girl that John had be put on a platter. I think he regretted that. He really, really regretted it. He was thinking of ways of trying to avoid that. But he made a, a vow, a stupid vow. But in those days, you don't want to lose face in public. So whatever yeah. vow you made, you carried out, and etc. That's what happened. But he's he's terrified that he's thinking that John, yeah. Okay, Pastor. Thank you. Good. God bless you, man. You too. Have a safe journey home. Brother, anytime have a safe journey home, and God bless you all. Thank, Thank you. you. Say hi to the wife as well. Thank you for listening. Thanks for encouraging others too, and thanks for interacting with us and asking your questions. Have a blessed night. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM and 92.3 FM. You can also listen online at radiolighthouse.org. And during this program, That's Truth, you can join us on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 823 we have a follow-up comment or question in relation to the question about Saul on the road to Damascus. And God called on him and said, Saul, Saul, why do thou persecutest me? He said, who are you, Lord? The comment is, if he didn't know the Lord, how could his first response be, who are you, Lord? Uh, again, he's thinking that it's the God of Israel, Jehovah, the uh, Elohim or uh, Yahweh. That's what he's thinking. He's shocked now that besides Yahweh, there is another one who is Lord. See, uh, And this is the idea, again, of the biblical teaching of the Trinity. Remember that the Jews were monotheists, which believed that there was just one God. One God in the sense that there was a, 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 a unity of, of Godhood. They never understood in its fullness the idea that there was a Father, there was a Son, and there was a Spirit. So he's still thinking Jewishly. That's why when Christ came on the scene and he said to the people, you know, before Abraham was, I am. It could never be a more blasphemous statement than that. Who is the I am in the Bible? Exodus 3. When Moses, the Lord spoke to Moses, Moses asked, who do I say to the people when I say that you, Jehovah, sent me? Who do you say <laughs> sent me? He said, tell him I am sent you. Now, wait a minute. So here's my Jewish God, the I am, and now this man comes to the scene. By the way, we know he was just 33 years old. He is saying before Abraham was, he's the I am. And that's why they took up stones to stone him, because they were understand that he was claiming identity with God. So when he's on the Damascus Road, he still has this, remember he's a Jew, he's a Pharisee. He's thinking in the context of Judaism. He's not thinking that Jesus Christ is God's son. He's not thinking about the Holy Spirit. He's thinking of a unity, God, uh, Jehovah. And now when he, so when he asked Lord, that he was expecting, well, I'm Jehovah. But that's not what he got. He got, 
I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And for the first time, lights came on in his mind, and he realized, wait a minute, wait a minute. He is truly the Messiah, the Son of God, right? Look what we did. We crucified the Messiah. From that point on, Paul became a Christocentric believer, and everywhere he went, he proclaimed the gospel, and he defined the identity of Christ as being the Son of God and being equal with with God, and that uh, he's called Savior and he's called God at the same time. That's what we have in that particular passage. Thank you very much for your interaction with us on the program tonight. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1454. Again, that WhatsApp or text number is 1-268-782-1454. And if you want your question to be sure that it is not traced back to you at all, just put anonymous at the beginning and... We won't even mention uh, what country the area code is from. We will just keep it as a generic question from a listener. You may be thinking, you know what, I have a question, but I'm a little embarrassed to ask it. I'm sure everybody else listening to the program has the answer. First of all, that's not true. And secondly, we would love for you to ask that question because... The rest of us are going to be asked a similar question at some point, maybe on the bus, maybe at the grocery store or the gas station later this week. And as we listen to Pastor Murphy answer your question from a biblical worldview, it prepares us to be ready to give an answer when others question a similar topic or line of thinking. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 828 We still have 30 minutes left in this episode, so please go ahead and send in your question via WhatsApp or text message 268-782-1454. While we await your question, we are going to delve into a new line of thinking, a new uh, series of questions that uh, Pastor Murphy has studied and prepared for, and it is the topic of sexual addiction. Pastor Murphy, what do you mean by this topic, and why are you discussing this on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse? Well, first of all, let me explain what I'm doing. It. It's a serious problem globally. It's not a Caribbean-only problem, regional problem. It's a global problem. The sexual addiction is... Um, becoming uh, um, even more increasingly problematic, and it's going to grow and grow and grow. Um, What we mean by sexual addiction, basically, is that uh, there are people who have become sexual predators, they've lost control of their sexual urges, and their sex life has become unmanageable. They want to stop, but they can't seem to stop. They have excessive sexual thoughts, desires, urges, and behavior, and they just can't control this and uh, it kind of distresses and causes harm within relationships uh, sometimes with their finances and different aspects of their life but the fact is they are they've lost control of the discipline uh, not to engage in sexual activity there it's almost like a obsession compulsive disorder that uh, Psychology would use to describe the term. Some people d- define it as hypersexuality. 
some all people define it as a compulsive uh, sexual behavior. Whatever term you use, the whole idea is that the person's lost control and can't discipline their sex life. And uh, they're in bondage to sexual desires and, and, and wants, and, uh, etc. Does this only apply to unbelievers, or can this be Christians, born-again believers also? It's becoming very clear that it's not a restricted problem to unsafe people. There are Christians who also, well, professed believers, I would say, who are also grappling with this uh, addictive power of, of, of sexuality. Um, and uh, there are people, um, I know at least one of them, who um, profess uh, Christianity, but man alive, they have no control over their sex life. And uh, I personally have reservations when I find that because the Bible tells us that we should not be brought under the power of anything. And the Bible teaches that when we got saved, uh, the power of sin was broken in our lives. So I have some uh, reservations of people who have this strong sexual addictive uh, power over them that they don't seem to have control. And I think that they need to get help, and they can get help. If they're believers, at least, they should be willing to get help. Uh, but to continue in this condition for years after years after years after years after years uh, causes me to put a question mark uh, about the reality of their salvation. I'm not trying to justify anyone's uh, actions, but couldn't you point to Samson in the Bible? I mean, he obviously had a lust problem, which lust, in his case, led to uh, a woman problem, a sex problem. Yeah, so Samson was the he-man with the she problem, right? And uh, there's no question that he had a weakness. But I would like to say that our New Testament situation is not the same as the Old Testament. Okay. We now have the indwelling Holy Spirit at resident within us. Number two, we now have the complete Word of God, uh, the, including the, not just the Old Testament, <coughs> but the New Testament. <coughs> And I think also we have a better understanding of the problem and the ramifications and consequences of the problem. We are all aware today, for example, that there are over 24 STDs. I mean, to my mind, it's irrational for anybody to know that and yet not try to discipline and control their sex life. Uh, so we're going against <coughs> knowledge as well. <coughs> we have a caller from Antigua. Thank you for calling and go ahead with your question, please. Yes, good night. I just like for you to explain for me John three verse five. Verily, verily I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the spirit. That particular portion. Uh -huh. Well okay, I, I would listen off here. Okay, no problem, no problem. Thank you very much for your call. We appreciate it. I want you to read that verse and read the verses bef uh, bef the verse before and the verses after. Yeah. So uh, the question is about three. three five. Let me start in verse four. Uh, verse four says, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered and said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Verse 6 says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. <clears throat> Let me give my honest interpretation. 
there are several interpretations towards this, but uh, I think verse 6 is an explanation of what is meant in verse number 5. Again, read those two verses again together, please. Verse 5 and 6 says, Jesus answered unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So clearly he's talking about a spiritual birth. That's the first thing we need to understand. It's not a physical, fleshly birth he's talking about. Now the answer to the question is, what is meant by being born of the water? Again, remember that you're dealing with a Pharisee, a teacher. Christ said that our teacher in Israel and do, do not even know these things. Again, it, 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 if he was an informed teacher as he would, he would have known that the prophet Ezekiel had promised that uh, God would send what is called the New Covenant. And part of that New Covenant that uh, that is used is that the, the Spirit would wash them uh, and cleanse them. And, and that is what uh, is used in the Bible, that the, the water that would, he would sprinkle clean water on them. And then he explained the clean water you sprinkle on them refers to his Spirit. So Nicodemus would have had the background to know that he should have known that when our Lord said, not born of the flesh, but born of water, even the Spirit, that's what we really should, could be translated in the Bible, born of water, even the Spirit. That water was something mentioned in the prophets that the Lord was sprinkled on Israel and was explained that he would sprinkle his Spirit uh, on them and bring about a new heart in, the, in people. So the water here is referring to the Spirit. Is being born of the Spirit of God. And that's why our Lord went on, by the way, to give a further illustration. Nicodemus is confused, and he said, you know, the wind bloweth where it listeth, and you don't know where it goes or how it comes. So is everyone that's born of the Spirit. And so he's now explaining what he means. The water, uh, born of water, even the Spirit. Now let me explain to you the Spirit. The new birth is a mysterious birth where the Spirit of God is sovereign. He comes into a church, there are hundreds of people sitting in that church. The message is being preached. But guess what? Out of that congregation, only five people respond. Why? Because the Spirit of God moves in that church and speaks to five individual hearts, bypassing the vast majority. That's His sovereign work, to bring conviction. He brings conviction in that person's life, that person responds to the gospel, and is saved. See, So that's what salvation is. It's the Holy Spirit working in the person's life, drawing that person to Christ to show them that he is the... And by the way, if you go on in John chapter 3, you'll see that later on he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent, even so must Christ be lifted up. So the Spirit's job is to point that person who is convicted to Christ who is lifted up on the cross so that man can be forgiven. And the condition of uh, the transaction is that he might believe. Just like the Jews when they sinned and God sent serpents among them and then a serpent was put on a pole, and when they looked, they were healed. They look at Christ now, who's on the cross, dying as a Savior, and they heal because they believe and put their faith and trust in His work on the cross. That's what it is about. So the water there is referring to the Holy Spirit, which was promised uh, in the Old Testament that would be the sprinkling on the people and it would cleanse their heart and give them a new heart. Now, there's another interpretation I must give you as well. There are those that take that to mean the Word. And uh, you find in uh, Ephesians where God washes by the word. So the water is a symbol of the word, and there are those who say that God converts people through the word, the Holy Spirit using the word to bring people's faith in Christ. That is true as well. No question about that. 
the thing you must be very careful about is people who say that that's baptism. That's where the danger comes in, and it has nothing to do with uh, baptism. So the, the simple, clearest answer is that it's referring to the Holy Spirit, and the symbol of that was given in the Old Testament. And by the way, in John chapter 4, when our Lord is speaking to the lady that she will give her water, that she will never thirst, he speaks concerning the spirit he would give to them. Once again, it's the spirit. And by the way, it's useful to use that. John chapter 3, John chapter 4. The use of the symbol means the same thing by the same author. John wrote it in chapter 3, and then the exhibition is given in chapter 4. Thank you very much for your question. If you have a question, you can WhatsApp or text it to 1-268-782-1454. We still have 20 minutes in this episode, plenty of time for you to send in your question, and Pastor will answer it from a biblical worldview. It doesn't have to relate to anything that's been discussed so far tonight. You can WhatsApp or text your question to one 268 782-1454. Or you can call and ask your question live on the air. The phone line's open, 268-462-7420. Another WhatsApp question coming from Antigua. According to Acts 10, God showed Peter a vision of all kinds of birds of the air, four-footed animals, and creeping things of the earth, saying, Rise, kill and eat. What is the meaning of this vision? Well, the, the, if you know the story of what happened, is that uh, Peter is staunchly Jew. He believes that Christianity, which was virtually born out of the bowels of Judaism, he still have this idea that Christianity is Judaism. The two of them are synonymous. If you want to become a Christian, you become a Jew in order to become a Christian. His, his idea is that he doesn't have room for the Gentiles. Uh, as far as I, you should know, the Gentiles were always looked on as dogs, okay, pagans. Now, Peter has to be taught a lesson. Remember that Peter was given the keys to the kingdom? And he was going to open the door, and you'll find in Acts, by the way, he opens the door to the Jews in, 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 in chapter 2. The day of Pentecost. In chapter 8, he opens the door to the Samaritans who are half-breed Jew, half-breed Jew and, and, uh, and Gentile. And now, in Acts chapter 10, he's going to open the door to the Gentiles. But he needs to learn something. So while uh, he's there um, and Cornelius is praying, he wants to have light as to what he must do to be saved. Uh, the Lord sent and had uh, sent uh, Peter and uh, and while somebody's coming to Peter's home to, to bring to Cornelius, Peter's on the housetop and he's having a vision. What vision does he have? He sees a large sheet, four corners of the earth, and he sees all these animals inside there, unclean animals, clean animals. And, and uh, when he sees these kind of things, uh, in the vision, uh, the vision, he's told, look, kill these things. Peter said, I've never eaten anything unclean. In order, he still have this Jewish dietary laws in mind. He's still living in the old dispensation under the economy of law. He's still thinking Pharisaic, he's still thinking Judaistic. He now has to learn that uh, God is going to clean the Gentiles. Who you think is dirty and who you think are dogs, God is going to bring them into the kingdom and put them on the same level as you. That was a shocker to Peter. Now, Peter doesn't know exactly 
what this means. So he goes, and he goes down to the house of Cornelius. And you remember that while Peter is preaching the gospel and telling Cornelius the gospel, suddenly the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius and his family, and they spoke with tongues. Significant, very significant. Why? What happened in Acts chapter 2 when the Jews were entered the kingdom? The sign was they spoke with tongues. To show that there's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile, the same kind of phenomenon, these glossolalia, speaking in tongues that happened to the Jews now happened to the Gentiles. In other words, God is now breaking down the middle walls of partition and creating of two, Jew and Gentile, one thing called the church. Paul explained this in Ephesians chapter 2. And then Peter recounts the a vision, and he said, "Now I understand that I must not call anything unclean that God calls clean." So he now has enlightenment that it's not a Gentile must not become a Jew. The Gentile is placed on the same level as the Jew, and all that the Gentile needs to do is the same thing the Jew had to do. He has to repent, put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and he is baptized by the Spirit into the family of God, which is called the Church. That is what uh, Peter learns from that lesson, and that's what is being taught there. Now, there are some people that take that and carry it a little bit further and say that it is very, very clear from this event that it means now that all meats are no longer unclean. That's stretching the point because that's not the emphasis of the chapter. Uh, of the chapter. There are other verses of scripture that will show you clearly that the meat dietary laws are, are, are got done away with. But you don't stretch that scripture to mean that now because in your mind you want a proof text. It has to do with accepting the Gentiles and putting the Gentiles within the church on the same par, same level, so that the two become one in Christ and breaking down this hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. So a, a Gentile doesn't need to become a proselyte to become a Christian. He doesn't have to be circumcised to become a Christian. He doesn't have to keep the law of Moses to become a Christian. He becomes a Christian by faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repentance. Like the Jew, so the Gentile. That's the teaching. Thank you for all of your questions tonight. You can send in your question via WhatsApp or text message to one 1454 Pastor, you were starting the topic of sexual addiction, talking about why you're discussing it. Are there other names that might be used to describe this addiction? Well, I, I, I mentioned that sometimes they call it hypersexuality. Uh, they also call it compulsive sexual behavior. These are all psychological terms that it's just a softened almost to make it kind of a euphemistic in the song so that it doesn't carry the same bite it would when you talk about sexual addiction. The song to be much more harsh to use that. And so you try to palliate the problem by using more pleasant terms and more scientific terms and more psychological terms, but it's hiding the fact that it's really an addictive problem. It's a bondage. That's what it is. Is it really that big of a widespread problem? Do you have any uh, statistics for us? I got statistics, and I wish I had the statistics on Antigua and on Barbados and the Caribbean, but we have a paucity of uh, statistics in the Caribbean. Seldom can we get what we want, and uh, a lot of these studies are not done and kept up to date, so we, we are always in, in problems when we're trying to find stats. But let me give you stats from the country that always produces stats and I always keep a tab on all these type of things and I don't think it's any different between America the population may be um, larger of course but in terms of the percentage of the problem I don't think it's any significant because all western countries are faced with the same problem uh, 
according to the statute of breaker, I'm having a problem with my, uh, could we have a break? Yeah. We're going to have a song here, and we will come back. Uh, you're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM and 92.3 FM. We are also broadcasting online at radiolighthouse.org. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.46. I'm glad you've taken time out of your Tuesday evening to listen to That's Truth. And if you have a question, you can WhatsApp or text it to us. If you send it quickly, Pastor will still have time to answer it before the end of this episode. We've got about 14 minutes left in this particular episode. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Yeah, I'm I'm here, sorry. Uh, So, Pastor is just getting ready to share some statistics about this topic of sexual addiction. I'm sorry about the break, but I'm having my, my... Draining of my nose and creating some problems for me because I'm dealing with the flu, etc. Uh, yeah, um, it's estimated that between six and eight percent of the U.S. population are sex addicts. That means 24 million people. That's a staggering figure, right? I think uh, I think the percentage is higher than the Caribbean, to be honest with you, because what I see and what I've known all my life, I think, is far worse within the Caribbean context. Ninety-four um, percent of all sex addicts are men. That's a staggering figure. 5.3% are generally women. Uh, again, I think it might be different within the Caribbean context because it used to be that the men used to chase women. Now we've got women chasing men. It's, it's like the whole roles are reversed. And uh, it, it, it's so, um, I know, you know, it, it's so unscriptural, so unbiblical, so contrary to the norms, but that's the kind of society that we're currently in. Uh, uh, 43% of all sex addicts suffer from some comorbidity, which means it has to do with some of the um, addiction. Like they're, um, they're dependent on like some chemical they either use in marijuana or crack or cocaine or some other, or alcohol. Uh, but they've got what's called comorbidity. Then 81% of sex addicts, uh, when you investigate them, were sexually abused, 97% were emotionally abused, and 72% were physically abused. Now, again, this is the statistics, but sometimes people are looking for an excuse to endorse um, the habit, uh, and the abuse factor does play a major role in those that, as a matter of fact, people who have abused turn around and abuse people. If you have a man, a guy's living in the home, his daddy's been abusing his mom, whether by manhandling her, beating her, or whatever, he, he kind of resolves in his mind very frequently that it never happened to him, but you check his life afterwards. He repeats the same vicious cycle. Uh, it's like it's ingrained. Uh, 20.8% of sex addicts have had uh, some relationship ended, but it did not change their behavior. That's a very high percentage of the, the people that are there. 27.5% have contracted an STD, but it hasn't changed their lifestyle. 25%. 25%. 27.5% uh, addicts have, have had the STD. Uh, 89% uh, said that they had uh, engaged in sexual activity with people outside their marriage or a primary relationship. 
So a lot of it has to do with unfaithfulness and infidelity. A lot of the addicts are married people. Uh, you would think that that would not be the case because they have a satisfaction where they have a wife. But quite frankly, um, they want multiple partners. Uh, they become addicted. The average recovery from addiction, sexual addiction, is three to four years. Wow. That is frightening. That in itself is a frightening statistic. Uh, it's a long-haul thing, uh, and uh, that's why it's so difficult to get. It's, it's just like how, as, as difficult it is to get people off crack or cocaine or heroin. Now, imagine that sex is not doing any kind of damage to the mind, et cetera, et cetera. And they, remember that they do these things because of pleasure. So they're getting this kind of pleasure without really the devastating consequences after you come down with crack or cocaine. So you can see if it's so difficult to come off crack or cocaine, uh, it's much, much more hard. The other thing is that 51% of those who are recovering have a relapse. So 50% change, they go back and get a relapse, go back and get a relapse. It's a very difficult uh, thing. So it's like a, it's a bondage, and it speaks about human brokenness. And it just gives you an idea of the deep level of depravity that is now dominant in the, in, in the, uh, in the modern world. And um, ser- uh, uh, sex has become like a surrogate medication that solves the narcissistic brokenness of these people who have lost control of their sex lives. But those are some of the, the um, data, and I don't have any, any other, and I wish that we had for the Caribbean. I wish there was some kind of research center that would do a lot of these type of things, so when we want information, we can garner information, whether it be on abortion, whether it be on sex, whether it be on use of drugs, like the secondary schools. I wish that we knew from an educational point of view what is the frequency of sex in the school, what is the frequency of drugs in the then you can address the problem. But if you don't know the problem, the severity of the problem, you're living in an oblivious world of la-la land. And as a result, it continues to grow and it gets worse. By the time it comes to the point of crisis, it is so bad to try to fix it now, it just creates more problems. Uh, but we really have a paucity of data and information. But this gives you a, a kind of a broad idea of how serious the problem is. Uh, and I think it's far worse in the Caribbean than it is in that part of the, uh, the, the world. Um, that, that is my, my view on this matter. It seems like every generation, short of the gospel restraining or changing, seems like every generation becomes more relaxed or more liberal than their parents' generation and definitely than their grandparents' generation. Pastor, I'm sure you're aware of this, but there are professing believers who their children, as their children are becoming 18, 19, 20, 25 years old, their children are uh, moving in with their boyfriends and their girlfriends, and the parents, in some cases, professing believers, are not taking a strong stand on it. They're still, oh, I love my child, and they can do what they want. They're adults. If that happens in this generation, what's the next generation of professing believers? What are Well, look, I, I would say this. Um, parents should never tolerate whether it be the daughter or the one, bringing home somebody in the house and allowing them to sleep, uh, or even go in the bedroom. 
that should end. That should stop. That should never happen in the Christian home, right? If it is happening in the Christian home, that person, if there's a leader in the church, that leadership role should be removed. That doesn't mean they can't come to church, but they can't serve in a capacity of leadership because they're setting a bad example, right? Um, a, 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 a Christian home should set rules and guidelines, and children should know what those rules and guidelines are, and there are conditionalities that should be laid down, um, you know. But when a child violates those rules and guidelines and brings the uh, home into disrepute, parents need to take a, a stand. And if a guy wants to bring home his girlfriend and says she wants to sleep, you tell him, you know, you got a choice. You either um, desist from this or you find another place to live. Give him a choice. He's 18 years old. He's 19 years old. He's not a child. He's not a minor. He could be on his own. right? But to, to encourage uh, him to be living at home, in your home you couldn't be a Christian, sleeping with his girl or sleeping with her boyfriend is uh, despicable. Totally despicable. And con- completely contrary and unworthy of the name of Christ. And it's a scandal in that neighborhood, wherever that professed believer is, once people know about it, uh, and it should stop. And I am suggesting that if churches would get serious on these matters, it might put some guts into these people to make some tough decisions, because you can't be a deacon now, you can't be a Sunday school teacher now, you can't be the head of the youth meter, you can't sing in the choir now, you can't do that. Ah, But you know what will happen, Nathan? They run off to another church who will completely ignore the discipline, and so the situation worsens. The problem is the home and the church. If we can deal with the church and the home, we can solve the problem. And if we are concerned about the next generation, the problem has to st- the, the solution has to begin in the home, trickle into the church to save the next generation. If nothing is done in the home and nothing is done in the church, we're going to lose a different, another generation. And you made an important point. The second generation is always weaker than the first generation spiritually. And uh, that is something that should not be, because we would have had the example of the first generation. Uh, hopefully we've had enough time to know the word, etc., etc. So I don't see why it should be that way. But I think that something happens along the line where uh, slackness comes in, and uh, as a result of that, we develop a don't careish attitude, and then we're influenced by society and the culture as it gets weaker and weaker and less Christian and less Christian and we like chameleons begin to adapt to the situation and then we siphon off their views into our own life and we lose sight of the fact of our Christian identity and what happened then? The salt has lost its. This is what Christ warns again. He said, when the salt has lost its savor, what good is it for? Right? And there's something thing where you've got to ask what, what's the use of that church any longer? I mean, wow. why, 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 why? remember what Christ told them? He will remove their candlestick. And that's what happened to some churches. He removed the witness and when their testimony, they are now seen as a social club with no spirituality, no meaning whatsoever. That's the danger, I think, that faces a lot of churches. For the <coughs> Christian parent who is endorsing or not taking a stand against their child's known sin, Will there be judgment from God? Oh, yes. There's no question about that. We are going to be held responsible for our children. As long as they're living under our roof, we are going to be held responsible for it. So uh, if we are not uh, trying to enforce the rules and regulations, of course. Now, that doesn't mean, uh, Nathan, of course, that 
you have a perfect Christian home. Uh, you all have perfect children. But at least you must have those children respecting your Christianity and living within the rules and the guidelines that you have set for your home. <coughs> you can have an unsaved son living in your home, an unsaved daughter living in your home. But the respect that is faith, the respect the Christian faith, uh, begins to see that mom would tolerate my girlfriend coming home and sleeping over and they don't think much of their parents' Christianity. Believe you me, they don't think much of it. They just, uh, they disdain it on the inside. They realize that that's, that's it. they know what should be better than you know. And when they see this inconsistent behavior, now they want to talk about getting saved, you want to talk about getting your life, and they're laughing on the inside. You're not serious, are you? They lose their witness, they lose, and they lose the ability to be of any influence in the child as far as their morality and their spirituality is concerned. How would you respond to the parent that says, but Pastor Murphy, I don't want to offend them because if I offend them, they may not want to come to church with me. Look, you can't live in this world being a Christian and not offend people. Paul said as much as left when you try to live peace with all men, but it's not possible. Uh, your responsibility is to live right for God uh, to shape your child, mold your child, mentor your child in the direction of faith. Read Deuteronomy chapter 6. That's your responsibility. Uh, would you rather offend God or offend your child? Which is more important to you? For me, I'm more concerned of aff- about offending God than I am about offending my child. And my duty is to live within the confines and the principles of Scripture. And my home, uh, that should be part of my, uh, my bringing up my kids. So I, I, I think that parents who are fearful are cowards, and I think they need to take a Christian stand, have a biblical view, and take a stand for truth. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.